Well, good morning. If you would, please turn to or turn on your Bibles to the first chapter in the book of Colossians. So we're going to be camping out this morning. It's a huge joy and privilege to preach the word to you and with you this morning. I'm very thankful to the elders at Trinity who have given me this opportunity, and hopefully they won't immediately regret that decision this afternoon. <laughs> I'm also thankful for uh, David and filling in my shoes, leading worship. That's fantastic, brother. Appreciate that. And I also want to give out a shout out to a, just a huge thank you to all my brothers and sisters who have graciously left their home churches in order to come and to cheer me on as I preach the word here at Trinity. That means a lot to me, guys, and I'm very grateful for your support and for your love for me. I hope you'll be spiritually fed this morning uh, as I bring the word. If not, Anything else? Then maybe I will instill within you a thankfulness that you previously did not have for the good preaching at your home churches. So either way, it's a win-win. That being said, let's go ahead and jump into the text. It's going to be Colossians 1, and we're going to start with verse 15. We'll turn there. Colossians 1, verse 15. Hear the word of God this morning. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is our text this morning. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that these words that we just read on the page of your scriptures would become more than just words on a page, Father. That they would, in a way, jump out and reach us and grab us, grab a hold of our hearts, grab our attention. Oh, there's so many things out there that that call for our attention. Even now, as we're gathered together, there's so many things that we could be thinking about, pondering about. But Father, I pray that we would incline our hearts to your testimonies seen in your word. We turn our eyes upon Jesus as seen in the scriptures here. Will you, will you rebuke where, where rebuke needs to happen, Father? Will you comfort those who need to be comforted? Will you give exhortation to those who need to be exhorted so that we can all reach maturity into the image of Christ, which is the goal for your glory, Father, and for our own great joy, I pray these things. Amen. When I was growing up, uh, my family lived in a neighborhood that was adjacent to a McDonald's, and we lived in this, you know, peaceful neighborhood, 
And then there's this McDonald's that we, uh, you know, as a seven-year-old kid, McDonald's was like, man, that was, the, that was the deal. Like, that was it. Like, if you could go to McDonald's, like, man, those, those Happy Meals, it doesn't get much better than that, right? And so uh, sometimes my parents would take us across the street. We'd walk to go to McDonald's. Frequently, it was, it was when uh, my mom was out of town and dad didn't feel really like cooking. And so we would, would hop on over to McDonald's. But what separated our neighborhood from the McDonald's was this massive four-lane street, and it was a high-occupancy street. Like, there was a lot of traffic there. It was about 45 miles per hour, so it was fast cars, a lot of cars going out of time, and so when we would walk and we'd go to the edge of the curb, I remember my dad grabbing my hand and looking at me and saying, Seth, don't cross the street. If you do, you could, you could get injured. You could, you could get really injured, and you could possibly die. Don't cross the street. And I remember him saying that with great love, with great care for me, and with all seriousness. And our text this morning, Paul says something similar. He, he grabs us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, Christian, believer, don't cross the street. The big idea of this passage is that Jesus is better, therefore don't move on from him. These three verses, verses 21 through 23, act as the doorkeeper for the whole book of Colossians. In his introduction, he's saying that this is going to guide the conversation that follows in the later chapters. If you recall, recall from the previous sermons that his audience that Paul is writing to is tempted to be lured away from the purity and simplicity of the gospel. They're tempted to move on from Jesus. There are three main points this morning that we're going to hit. Number one, a severe condition. It's seen in verse 21. Number two, a saving Christ. Number three, a sober caution seen in verse 23. Alliteration is awesome. You get carried away sometimes. <laughs> Hopefully that will serve serve us this morning. So let's look at the first one, a severe condition. Look at verse 21 with me. Paul writes, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Look at that, those first two words, and you. Paul just came out of this grand description about the, the supremacy of Christ and how he's preeminent over everything. And then he seems to suddenly and almost randomly shift our focus to something way less impressive, namely our past. And, you know, you might expect him, or you might think, if you didn't look at the Bible, like, here's Jesus, he's so grand, he's high and lifted up, and, you know, you're good too, you're cool too, like, you know, Jesus is awesome, but, you know, you're, you're sweet as well. What does he say about us? That, that we're lovable, that we're talented, God needs us on our, his team, you know, he would be silly not to have us. We're so, we're so cute and cuddly and a little rough around the age, edges, but, you know, that's all right. No, he says that you're, you're alienated, you're estranged. You're separated from God. You have no right to be in the presence of the Lord. No right whatsoever. And surely to the, the original Gentile readers of the church, they would knew exactly what Paul was getting at. As Gentiles, they weren't the people of God. They weren't given the covenants. They weren't given the promises like with Israel. So from a purely ethnic perspective, they had no right to be in relationship with God you know, on this side of the cross, the cultural divide between Jew and Gentile has been obliterated because of Jesus making the two the one. In reality, ultimately, we're all separated from God if we're out of relationship with him. Everybody 
is alienated from his divine presence. We don't belong there. This is who we are. This is fundamentally who we are. You want, you want to say, okay, my, my life as an unbeliever, it's boom. It's you are fundamentally alienated. That's, that's how your life is characterized. I don't know about you, but that's something I overlook. I don't really recall my lostness. I don't remember what it's like to be out of relationship with the Lord. That's not something that comes to mind a lot. And yet Paul brings us to this point. He, he calls it to mind. But it gets worse. This alienation, this separation affects our deepest core. Keep reading. Not only were we once alienated, but we were hostile in our mind. In his commentary, David Garland uh, astutely observes, when you're out of relationship with God, it mars your entire life. Your condition was so severe, it was so bad, that you were warring against God even by the way you thought. That, that is insane for me to think about that. You might not actively shake your fist at God in a physical form of rebellion, but you hated him by the way you thought. You know, growing up, I thought I was a pretty good kid. I was, I was homeschooled, so I wasn't like dealing drugs at age eight or anything like that. I was a pretty good kid, and I thought, you know, the gospel really isn't for me because I'm not really that bad. It's easy for us to think that as long as I don't act on any of the thoughts that I have, then it's not, it's not, we're good, we're good. Like everybody's got those evil thoughts, the Lord understands, but that's not what Paul says. He says that our very thoughts were hostile, and as an unbeliever, your thoughts are continually at war with God for the glory that is due his name. Your thoughts are fighting for that glory and exalting yourself. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it can, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So make no mistake this morning. Your, your thoughts, they, they matter. They matter to God. Look again at verse 21. You are alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Do you see the progression here? Your, your separation from the one you are meant to know leads to Hostile thoughts towards evil behavior. Your, your thoughts twist and affect your behavior, and your behavior twists and affect your thoughts. There's, a, there's an intimate interplay between the two. The, depri- the, the depraved mind leads to depraved behavior, and, the de- and evil actions lead to, e- lead to evil thoughts there. Pastor and friend Dan Kirk wisely summarizes, you become what you behold. It affects you. What you think about is what shows in your actions. So let's, let's pause there. From verse 21, what can we gather from this description? He's just, he's just laid it on us, right? Um, what can we gather from this? I think it's pretty safe to assume that your, your rebellion, your condition is complete. It is, it is total. It is indeed a severe condition. And I want to ask the question this morning, why would Paul do this? Why would he transition from talking about how great Jesus is, and we like that, right? Like, lift him up. We want to see how great Jesus is. And then he just brings our past into it. He brings our sin, and we're like, oh, Lord, that's, why you got to bring us up into the discussion? Why you got to do that? Like, why can't you just leave us out, and let's just magnify Jesus here? And think about it. Like, these are Christians he's talking to. Why is he bringing up their past if they've been forgiven in Christ? What is he doing? What is Paul doing here in the text? If you go to a jewelry store 
and you're looking to, looking to buy a valuable diamond that's worth a lot of money, what you'll see in the showcases is the, all the diamonds that you, you could ever want there, all the rings and necklaces, you'll see all the lights shining on them, and, and the, the, the rock of the diamond is, is fracturing the light in a way that just glistens there in the showcase. And if you're looking to, uh, to purchase a diamond and you talk to a sales associate, what they'll do is they'll, they'll pull that diamond out of the showcase, and they'll put it on something like a black felt, or they'll put it in a black box. Why? Why do they do that? Because the value of something is best seen in contrast. If you want to show something off, you show it in contrast to something, and the Bible's doing the exact same thing. After putting Christ in the showcase, so to speak, Paul takes him out and shows his immense purity, glory, and holiness by placing him on the backdrop of our sin. Thus, by bringing us into the and to the discussion, Christ again is magnified as glorious, as holy. You see how much better Jesus is. And beloved, the truth is you must come to grips with the, with the gravity of your sin before you'll see the greatness of your Savior. Or as Thomas Watson has famously said, until sin be sweet, Christ will not be bitter. Until, I'm sorry, I totally reversed that. <laughs> Let's try that again. <laughs> until sin be bitter. Christ will not be sweet, is what he famously wrote. And there's all different kinds of euphemisms for sin, isn't there? There's, there's whoopsie-daisy, there's I was in a rough patch. And Paul doesn't pull any punches here. He, he goes right to the chase. He says, you were hostile, you were estranged, alienated, doing evil deeds. I mean, that's... He makes no mistake. He's not pulling any punches. We need this, right? We need the Bible to be honest with us. Too often we're not honest with ourselves about our sin. We, we try to excuse it. It's not that bad. It's not really that evil. I mean, I mean, she said those things first. I was just sticking up for myself. Or He raised his voice at me. And it, I mean, sure, what I did wasn't the best, but he started it. Or if you had my kids, you would understand. Don't excuse your sin. Don't excuse your sin. Do you, do you surround yourself with people who support or stomp out your sin? When there's a situation that goes down at work and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe what just happened at work and my coworker, my manager treated me like this and you're on and on and it goes and you're talking to your friend and you're just kind of venting it out. Do you, does your friend listen there and be like, oh yeah, you deserve to be treated better. Oh yeah, that, that's wrong. Or do they, they listen? They say, yes, that, that was wrong, but they still speak the truth in love. They, they seek to confront you, no matter how small of a sin it might be. Do they let you get away with complaining the, the respectable sins, right? I encourage you to surround yourself with godly men and women who love you enough to confront you in your sin. Seek to be that friend who, who cares enough for the spiritual well-beings of others that when you see something you want to lovingly approach them and humbly come to them and say, hey, this doesn't line up with what the word of God teaches. We need each other. We need each other. Don't dismiss your sin. Your sin matters to God. It must be dealt with. Imagine a doctor coming to a patient who has a deadly yet curable illness, and he, he doesn't tell the patient that they have this illness. And he says, oh, you know, you're good. I know you got those symptoms, but I ran the test, and it's really not that bad. I mean, you got family who loves you and who cares for you. 
you're going to be all right. That's medical malpractice. He would be fired. He would, worse, he would probably put, be put in jail. Charges would be pressed. And in a, in a similar way, it's spiritual malpractice for you to be comforted in your sin, to downplay it. Don't minimize the severity of the reality of your condition. Don't sweep it under the rug. You know, one of the most loving things that God can do is pull back the veil of your heart and show you the seriousness of your sin and how offensive it is to him. So I ask you, do you, do you feel the weight of it? Do you feel the weight of your severe condition? Remember, Paul's writing to believers. Be careful when you're, you're quick to sin and say, oh yeah, Jesus paid it all, I'm good. Jesus said, blessed are the broken in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There is a godly sorrow that leads to true repentance that by no means seeks to atone for sin in any way, but humbly recognize the, the offensiveness of it. So let's bring this point home. If you are in Christ, this truth of your past should both humble you and give you hope. It should humble you because you were an enemy of the one you now love. Your, re- your rebellion was extreme. No matter how good of a person you were on the outside, this description fits all of us. Nobody is excluded. We were all alienated, all hostile in our minds, all doing evil deeds. But this truth should also give you hope. God brings low to lift up, right? Praise God for that, that simple yet powerful phrase at the beginning. You once were. If you're in Christ, that's not who you are anymore. Hallelujah. You were not defined by your sin as a believer. Actually, earlier in this chapter, Paul calls the saints holy. He calls them holy ones. Their their lives are characterized by the life of Christ to the degree where they are clothed in his righteousness and called holy. That is amazing. That's not who you are if you're a believer today. That's not your identity. If you're not a believer, this truth should absolutely terrify you. Because you are at odds with a righteous, holy, just God who will by no means overlook your sin. He's not the grandpa in the sky who just winks at your sin, you know. All, all rebellion must be dealt with. To borrow a phrase from Paul Washer, the fact that God is good is the scariest thing about him if you are an unbeliever. Because the Bible makes very clear in this verse that you are not good. And God is a good, just judge, and all wrongs will be made right. But praise God, there isn't a, a period at the end of this verse. All of this is true, but Paul doesn't want us to stay there. Brings us to my next point here. We looked at a severe condition. Now we're look at a saving Christ, verse 22. If you would, look at the text with me. And you, who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Yes, your, your condition was bad. It was severe. It was hopeless. You were in the muck and mire. But, oh, rejoice, sinner, for you can be saved. How? How can we be reconciled? How can something so severe be made right? How can it be restored? And the answer is Christ was all anguish that you may be all joy. 
he was cast off, that you might be brought in. He was trodden down as an enemy that you might be welcomed as a friend. He was surrendered to hell's worst that you might attain heaven's best. Stripped that you may be clothed, wounded that you may be healed, at thirst that you might have drink, tormented that you might be comforted, made a shame that you might inherit glory, entered darkness that you might have eternal light. Our Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from your eyes, groaned that you might have endless song, endured all pain that you might have unfading health, bore a thorny crown that you might have a glory diadem, bowed his head so that you might uplift yours, experienced reproach that you might receive welcome. He closed his eyes in death that you might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired that you might live forever. Behold your great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a glorious paradox. This is the gospel. He took our place. This is our only hope. You can be restored. You can be reconciled. But make no mistake, beloved, your reconciliation was costly. 2,000 years ago, God came, skin and bone, lived among this wicked, sinful, messed up place called earth, only to be accused, betrayed, and brutally murdered. The Gospels tell us that when John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, he cries out, behold the spotless lamb of God. He was perfect. He never sinned. Jesus never sinned. Everywhere we fall short, he succeeds. He was never separated or alienated from God. He was never hostile in mind. He was never practicing evil deeds. He was without sin. He obeyed the Father's will perfectly, even to death on a cross. And on that cross, that spotless lamb was flooded with sin that he never committed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that, that God made Christ who knew no sin of himself to become sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our place. We deserve to be on that cross. Think about it. What did, what did Jesus ever do? To deserve that. He loved. He cared. He healed others. He, he exemplified unmatched humility, patience, and love. If you don't think your sin is serious, just look to the cross. Your sin was so severe, it warranted the death of the God-man Jesus Christ himself. What other God would do this? Gods of other religions don't die for people who rebel and hate them. They're too high and lofty for that. They don't do that. The world sees us as weak and foolish, but Paul invites us to marvel the majestic humility of Jesus seen in his incarnation and in his death. Just think about it. He just got done describing the awesome, glorious supremacy of Christ seen as pre-existent creator, sustainer of all things. But it's as Paul is just setting the stage and he's saying, you know what Jesus, you know what makes Jesus so great and so awesome? That he would die for an undeserving people. That's true power. That's true greatness right there. Do you hear 
this text scream that Jesus is better. He's better. I asked you this morning, do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? Do you believe in him? Maybe you're, you're listening to my voice and hearing these things as, as for the first time. If, if that's you, can we just have a conversation here real quick? I don't care what your background is, how church or unchurched you are, how old, how young. Bible makes clear that God's offer for salvation is only available through repentance and faith in what Jesus has done. Those two words, repentance and faith, we don't really use those in our everyday vocabulary. Repent just means to turn away. When God saves a man, he creates in him desires for himself that he wants to not have. So he turns away from the world, from loving the things in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He repents, he turns away from them, but he also believes. We use believe in in our English language to usually mean mental consent. Like, I believe Santa Claus, I believe, you know, he exists. But the Bible uses believe in a very different sense. In the Bible, believe means trust. And probably none of you guys thought about it, but when you came in and you sat down on that chair, you believed that that chair would support you or else you would not sit down. I'm standing here on this floor, and I, I am believing that this floor is not going to collapse and swallow me whole. Thus, I'm putting my full weight on the floor. And in the same way, we're, we dare not trust the sweetest frame. No, no amount of good works, church attendance, any of it. But we, we wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Saving faith requires both. The, the, the Jesus of the Bible rightly demands to be both Lord and Savior of your life. So I ask you will, you, you, will you repent and turn from your sin and believe in him alone to save you? Perhaps you're sitting here thinking, that's great, Seth, but I've done that like 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Why, why are you bringing up the gospel, something so basic as the gospel in the context of believers in a local church? And the reason why I'm bringing up the gospel in the context of believers in a local church is because Paul brings up the gospel in the context of believers in the local church. He deems it necessary, fit, and good for us to be reminded of the gospel. Don't think that you've moved on from it. We need to be reminded of the multifaceted truths of the gospel every single day. And this model isn't just found in Colossians. It's the model of the whole New Testament. Milton Vincent, in his excellent book, can't recommend it enough, The Gospel Primer, he, he observes that, that the New Testament teaches that Christians ought to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians do. For example... In the first chapter of Romans, Paul tells the believers in Rome, the believers in Rome, that he was anxious to preach the gospel to them. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Paul says to the believers, I make known to you the gospel which you have believed. Uh, Ephesians chapters 1 to 3 is all gospel. Romans chapters 1 to 11 is all gospel. Colossians, the book we're looking at, 1 to 2 is gospel. In the words of C.J. Mahaney, the gospel isn't one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian, but rather the gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in. Or in other words, repentance and faith in the gospel isn't just the doorway to the Christian life. Repentance and faith in the gospel is the Christian life. We need to do, make a habit of doing that every single day. 
looking at verse 22 again. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Our salvation has a purpose. He says, in order to present you holy. It's not that that you're just saved so you can go live however you want. Like, Lord, you have reconciled this relationship that was broken by my sin, but now, man, I can just go party it up now and just live however I want. No, God's grace isn't lazy. It's not weak. God's grace is so, so radical, so amazing, that it's not merely satisfied at forgiving us our sin. Oh, no, it's not. It's only satisfied when we are made into the image of Christ from one degree of glory until we reach the end. That's what God's grace does in our lives. Hallelujah, your Savior reverses your severe condition. Take a look at verse 22. Instead of once being alienated, we are now above reproach before him. Instead of once being hostile in mind, you are now blameless. Instead of once doing evil deeds, you are now called holy. Kent Hughes observes, while the scriptures paint the darkest possibilities for man apart from Christ, they also give us the highest, noblest vision of man known to any religious conception anywhere. That just makes my heart want to sing. Romans 6 says that our old self was buried with Christ in his death for the purpose of living in his resurrection. And he tells us to think of ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ because that's who we are if we are in Christ. So if, if holiness is, the, is a purpose of our salvation, then, then what are we doing to pursue holiness? What are we doing to pursue that end? Listen, nobody ever fell into holiness. It's not like there's a, there's a, there's a pit out here that we have dug and we hope that on your way out, you'll, you'll fall into the pit and go, man, whoa, I love the Lord now. Wow. I love people. That guy who annoyed me at work, man, I love him now. I love the word. I'm memorizing scripture. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> you can't passively become who God calls you to be. You can't passively work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's not how that works. I ask you, are are you declaring war against your sin? Are you fighting against the deeds of the flesh? Are you fighting the, the fleeting pleasures of this world with the superior pleasures of Christ? Like sin has great advertising. If it didn't, we wouldn't fall for it. It promises so, 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 so much, but it never really truly delivers. It's been famously said once that sin will take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay don't be tricked by deceitfulness. It's like buying a million-dollar package off of Amazon, and when it arrives in the brown box, you open it, and there's nothing in there. It always leaves you dry and disappointed. Try to remember one time where you sinned, and you actually left satisfied. Just one time. Just remember one time where you sinned and left satisfied. On the flip side, try to remember one time you spent time with the Lord, and you're like, man, I wish I didn't spend a whole 10 minutes in prayer. That was a waste of time. You just never think that. Like, you never read your Bible, and you're like, wow, that was, oh, there's so many better things I could have been doing with my time. You never really regret spending time with the Lord. Jesus is better. 
He's better. Don't move on from him. Instead, pursue him in his word. In the words of John Piper, the Bible is an ocean of weighty, all-satisfying truth about the one whom you were made to know. Pursue him through the church and, and through service and through scripture meditation, through prayer and all those other means of grace. Let your life be transformed as you, you gaze upon the beauty of Christ and so be transformed into his same likeness. Or as my favorite hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So far we've, we've seen a severe condition in verse 21, a saving Christ in verse 22, and now lastly, a sober caution. Verse 23. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast. Let's just pause right there. How could Paul possibly put an if on the statement? Like, I don't know if you read that and you're like, whoa. What are you doing here, Paul? How could you put an if? Did he not just get done describing our severe condition? Does he not know how bad it is? Is he saying that God saves you and then it's your job to keep up your salvation so you don't lose it? Is this a works-based salvation? What, what is he doing? Has he ever read Philippians 1.6 where it says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion? Some of you guys got that, not all of you guys did. <laughs> what is Paul doing here? If you, if you remember the situation that Paul's speaking into, these Colossians, they're, they're tempted to move on from Jesus. They're tempted to be lured away by destructive heresies. Thus, he wants to warn them as strongly as he possibly can. And in Greek, this whole paragraph that we're looking at, it it all hinges on this one emphatic if. It's all leading up to this one climatic if. It's as if Paul is saying, remember your lostness. Remember your loving Savior. All of this is yours if and only if you continue in the faith. No, he doesn't just tell the Colossians, you believe the gospel, you're sealed, you're good. Let's just move on with life. You can do nothing you'll ever do will separate you from Christ, so I don't really need to write this letter. That's not what he does. Is there, is there truth to that? Absolutely. But he's way more pastoral. In fact, none of the New Testament authors, none of the, let me say that, try that again, none of the New Testament authors promise eternal life regardless of how someone lives in the future. This, they never, they never, You'll never hear the authors say, once saved, always saved, no worries. They never say that. That's reductionistic. There's truth to that statement, but they never say it. Instead, they say things like in Acts 11.23, when people were becoming Christians, the text says that Barnabas exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfastness. So don't immediately dismiss the warnings of Scripture. I know when you're reading through this passage, you can be like, okay, yeah, hostile in mind, yeah, he, he has now reconciled, yes, 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 and then you come to the if, you're like, oh, that's not really for me, that's for those, for those almost Christians or for those pseudo-Christians, and you can kind of skim over it. Don't, don't dismiss the warnings of Scripture. Every Christian needs the admonitions and warnings of Scripture. My favorite New Testament scholar, 
Tom Schreiner, he helps us uh, to understand what the purpose of these warning passages are. He observes that when you survey through the warnings in the New Testament, you'll find that the functions of these warnings is to admonish true believers not to fall away. They are always given to Christians, and they're all absolutely true. If you leave the faith, you cannot be saved. There's nothing else out there for you. There's no longer a sacrifice for you if you move on from Jesus. But wait, I thought the Lord promised to sovereignly hold us in his hand so that nothing could snatch us out. Does he not sovereignly preserve us until the end? Answer, absolutely, absolutely. Perhaps the clearest verse that demonstrates this is Romans 8, 38. I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. You're secured. You're, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. So why would the Bible warn us against something that God promised will never happen? Why would Paul put an if? If we were secured, if we're sealed, why would he say that? The answer is the warnings of Scripture are one of the means by which God preserves his people. The purpose of the warnings are always redemptive and salvific. They act as road signs that caution drivers not to continue on this path because the road falls off. Don't continue down there. They're all prospective. That is, they look forward and not retrospective. They don't look back. The Lord uses them as a means to deliver his saints from eternal death. And the warnings are all 100% effective in the lives of God's people. When, when God brings a Christian to the edge of the cliff of apostasy and he looks down and see the perils of jumping off the cliff, eventually the Christian turns and embraces Christ instead. Let me illustrate this to you. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. We're going to see this in action. Acts chapter 27. In this passage, Paul is sailing to Rome, and he runs into a terrible storm, and everybody is terrified, but God gets a promise. Oh, I'm sorry. Paul gets a promise from God here in Acts 27. Start with verse 21. The text says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. It's nice to know the apostles. Paul says, I told you so. <laughs> it says, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So there it is, rock-sure promise from an angel of God. Every on, everybody on the boat will be delivered. Everybody will be delivered. Nobody will be dived. Nobody will die. They will all be saved from this boat. So... Paul goes into the cabin, and he throws a party. 
says, well, I got the promise, and might as well kick back, relax, and just enjoy the ride. No. Look, look what Paul does. Just a few verses down, when some of the sailors get scared that the, the waves are going to throw them against the land, and they're going to run aground. Look at verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and lowered the ship's boat into the sea under a pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Do you see what happened? There's a promise from God, but he still warns them. The warning is used as a means to keep the sailors on the boat. And it's 100% effective for everybody who's on the boat. And this is exactly what Paul is doing in this verse here this morning. He says to the church of Colossae and to us by extension, don't move on from Jesus. He is better. Look again at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This passage concludes with two main reasons why you should continue in the faith. First, you should continue in the faith because the gospel is your only hope for salvation. He doesn't say, if you continue in the faith of Islam and Christianity and Jehovah's Witness, if you continue in those three, you're good. He, no, he, he doesn't list another option, does he? He doesn't list another option in addition to the gospel. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says in Acts 4.12, there's no other name given among heaven, heaven by which men must be saved. There's salvation in no one else. The gospel is your only hope for salvation. Second reason why you should continue in the faith is because the gospel message is adorned by gospel lives. Paul is pointing to himself as a testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel message. If you remember Paul, before he was converted, he was actively persecuting the Christian church. He was a hater of the followers of the way, but the Lord got a hold of him on the road to Damascus and radically transformed his life by the power of the gospel. And as, it's as if Paul is saying, hey, if the gospel can do this to me, it can do it to you. If I have become a minister, the Lord can save and make a saint out of you. The gospel message is adorned by gospel lives. That's why you should continue and the faith. So I ask you, are you tempted to move on from Jesus this morning? Hear and heed the warning in this text. You can only be saved from your severe condition if you hold fast to Christ. Don't move on from Jesus. He's better than anything this world has to offer, good or bad. Remain stable and steadfast. Fight until the end. Like my dad said when he grabbed me by the hand, said, son, don't cross the street. So our heavenly father holds us in his hand and says to us, don't cross the street. Run and embrace the savior of your soul instead. So as we close, one of the ways that we declare to the world as a church our salvation is by partaking in the Lord's Supper. 
And if you are a baptized believer today, I invite you to come and eat and drink with us. How it will look like is in a moment we will read a scripture together on the screen. I will pray, then David will come up and play some music and you'll have a time to reflect. And whenever you're ready, the wine and bread will be in the back and you just take a piece of the bread, you dip it in the wine and you can return to your seat. seat. Also at this time, we have our basket. If the Lord is prompting on your heart to give, you can also do that on the website. But if you're sitting here thinking today, you know, I don't know if I've ever repented and believed in the gospel before. I don't know if this is something that I've ever done. Then I invite you as the others take the bread and the wine, you take Christ. Let today be the day that you turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And if you want to talk more about that, we would love to have that conversation with you. For the rest of us, let's, let's, uh, let's read 1 Corinthians. You can, stand, you can uh, remain seated. 1 Corinthians 11. If you would read the underlined portion. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your supremacy. We thank you that we can look at a book like Colossians and just marvel at who you are as the preeminent king, creator, and sustainer of everything. We praise you for upholding us, Father. Even when we were actively rebelling against you, we praise you that while Christ while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We praise you for that truth. We are undeserving recipients of your grace and of your mercy. Oh, and our, our condition was bad, Father. It was, it was bad. And may we not downplay that or sweep it under the rug or say it. It really wasn't that severe because it is offensive against you, an infinitely holy God. Pray that we would come to grips, that that truth would humble us, that we're not all that in a bag of chips. We, we desperately need salvation. We praise you that Christ became a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And we praise you for the cross, Father. We praise you that you loved us and you sent your Son so that we could be reconciled to you, that we could be restored to a right relationship with our God, the one whom we were created to give glory and to know, to love and serve with everything that we've got. That is our only hope this morning, Father. And I pray if there's, there's people here who, who don't know you, that you would you'd press on their hearts by your spirit, that 
we only have a two-second slice and then it's with you or not for all of eternity. But we're not promised tomorrow. But in a day and age where there's so many, so many results of sin, and thus death, Father, I pray that right, today would be the day that they turn. Turn to you knowing that there's nothing that they're really giving up because they're gaining everything. Father, I thank you for the people here. I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you that you are holding on to us and when we seem not to be holding on to you and that you're sustaining us, preserving us. Oh, may we, may we love you and embrace you fully and not move on from you as if there's anything better because there's not, Father. We love you, Lord. It's in your holy name that I pray these things. Amen.